0: The news media has always been the direct connection between the public and the criminal justice system. From the introduction of cameras in courtrooms to cyber sleuthing and the 24-hour news cycle, there's no doubt that media plays a pivotal role in how cases are interpreted by the public. Today I'll be talking to Joel Waldman, Emmy award-winning former network news correspondent and host of Surviving the Survivor podcast. We'll discuss his early years at MSNBC, the homicide case that changed the trajectory of his podcast, and the ever-changing relationship between the media and criminal justice. From Storic Media, you're listening to Codename Siren, a true crime podcast with Nina Hobson.
1: I was in uh, broadcast news for close to 27 years, which is hard for me to believe because I still feel uh, most days like I'm about 18 or 19. But I I sort of stumbled onto that in a a weird roundabout way. I to uh, a university where everyone either went to law school or medical school, and I uh, was horrible at science. And despite being the uh, only non-doctor in my family, I uh, pursued this career, kind of fell into it. And I went up through the producer ranks. I was one of the first producers ever hired at MSNBC. A lot of people don't know this, but MSNBC actually, before it became MSNBC, was housed inside of CNBC in Fort Lee, New Jersey. And I worked there as they were building MSNBC, uh, which at the time was being built into a giant warehouse uh, in New Jersey. No one had ever seen anything like this before, a massive warehouse that became MSNBC. And... Uh, Just met a lot of great people there in news and uh, was encouraged to then become a reporter. And I worked doing financial news at the New York Stock Exchange. And I was actually working, which is a whole other story, at Three World Financial the day of uh, the 9-11 attacks. Um, And I was on my way in to work that day. I was living in Hoboken right across the river, saw the first plane hit, turned around. And uh, again, that's probably uh, an entire other episode. Long story short, I I did the local news route, and I ended up back in my home state, hometown. My home state is New Jersey, but ended up at Fox 5 uh, where I was an investigative reporter and eventually got called in by Roger Ailes, uh, the then head of Fox News, to move down to Washington, D.C. and became a national correspondent with Fox News Channel, doing a lot of their affiliate work. Then I had three kids, and I was traveling, uh, you know— more than three weeks a month, and I had to make some really tough decisions. And I decided to kind of, for a number of different reasons, to kind of do my own thing and started a media company. Uh, And then the rest, as they say, is history because the pandemic hit and the business died. And uh, that's where I suggested to my lovely mother, who is a Holocaust survivor, uh, I said, hey, why don't we uh, do a podcast? You've got a a really interesting take on life. You've been through stuff. Uh, She loves to talk. And uh, that's how we started Surviving the Survivor back in, uh, I want to say April of 21. And we were working with a, uh, a friend of mine, a guy named Steve Cohen, who deserves a lot of credit. Um, and he was a, a very well-known booking producer in the network world in New York uh, broadcast news. And so he was getting us big name guests. We had Carol Baskin from Tiger King on, and this was kind of at the height of Tiger King. So that was a really big get for us. Um, one thing she said to me really struck me. She had now met another endangered species. She said, tigers aren't endangered species and so are Holocaust survivors. And that's uh, a very true statement. Uh, My mom was very young at the time she went into hiding. She was uh, four and a half to five and a half, and she's now about to turn 84. So anyone who was older than four or five at the time is very late into their lives. Uh, So she is, you know, sadly, one of the few remaining, um, and that's why I felt compelled to write a book because she's kind of living history right now.
0: It then became a true crime podcast. How did that happen?
1: Back to the great Steve Cohen, uh, who is our producer and makes a lot of magic happen. Uh, he got fixated on a case out of Florida, which is where we do our podcast. And uh, it is the Dan Markell murder case. And uh, for those who don't know, Dan Markell went to Harvard undergrad and Harvard Law School. And he was one of like the rising legal scholars in America. And he got a teaching position at Florida State University. And he was married to a woman named Wendy Adelson. And in 2013, their marriage started to go south. And in 2014, he dropped his kids off at school, uh, went to the gym. And we got, when he got home from the gym, he was on a call in his driveway in Tallahassee. Uh, someone approached the car and put two bullets in his head. Case went unsolved. No one could figure it out. One eyewitness caught a glimpse of a car that turned out to be a huge lead. And after a lot of gumshoe detective work, the stuff that you do, Nina, which I admire so much, it was months and months, they were able to track down a rental car and uh, very, very, very long story short, they tracked down two members of the Latin Kings gang from Miami who were hired by a woman. And that woman, it turned out, had one point dated Charlie Adelson the ex-wife's brother. So now Charlie Adelson, this happened in 2014, right now is sitting in a Leon County jail in uh, Tallahassee, Florida, getting set to go on trial for murder this fall. And the consensus is that the mother, Donna Adelson, was also heavily involved, and many people think Wendy was also so we started doing that story, and so we stayed on it, um, and we do it periodically. And then Brian Koberger, the Moscow Four, the four young students were murder- murdered murdered uh, in such a vicious way in November. And we went from two thousand subscribers on YouTube back in just this past November. Uh, we're now uh, approaching fifty six thousand subscribers with a couple months with over two million views. So we've really uh, skyrocketed. But really the success, it's really because of our guests. We have people like you on and other really uh, professional, astute, uh, former investigators, criminal profilers. And so people really tune in because they want to get hard and fast advice from uh, professionals. Um, and, uh, and I run the show kind of like a network news show. So I purposely, and it's not that I don't, I, I'm constantly reading, constantly devouring information, but it's- the guests who make the show. And of course, as you know, STS Nation is an amazing community. We're 50, almost 56,000 strong, very knowledgeable, uh, you know, viewer base. And so that really helps propel the show as well.
0: You know, it's absolutely a great show. And, and, you know, you've obviously found that niche with the crime and the way that you do it is obviously what the listeners want. And uh, I I mean, I'm a huge fan. But um, just taking a sidestep from that. So obviously- Media has been your thing all of your life. Let's talk about media and crimes and prosecutions and society's perception because of the media. Now, obviously... I'm way too old for all this social media stuff, but it's having a huge impact. It's having a huge impact on things like detectives who are not real detectives are making comments about cases. And some people are thinking that's a knowledge-based comment, and it's not, and the problems that can cause.
1: And I think on almost every major case, it goes kind of breaks both ways. It breaks bad and it breaks good. The big one now um, is, uh, again, Brian Koberger in... Idaho. Everyone's all over that. I think most recently, the biggest case was probably the Gabby Petito case. And admittedly, I did not follow it that closely. But uh, during that story, you had, you know, cyber salutes following every step along the way during their travels through Utah, looking at the body cam footage from the um, officer stops, whether she looked like she had been uh, abused, were there warning signs? And so I think that was interesting because there were alarm bells sounded by, you know, the quote-unquote cyber sleuth community. Uh, And sort of the same thing is happening now with Brian Koberger. You know, every day you've got these independent YouTubers and independent journalists, quote-unquote journalists, uh, that are saying, well, look, it was DNA found at the house that doesn't match Brian Koberger, and so it's X, Y, or Z. Um, The problem with that is that none of these people are privy to the investigation. They're all looking at, at it uh, from the outside. It's literally like a fishbowl, and they're like staring at the fish on the inside of the tank. But Nina is the one that's uh, filtering the water and feeding them and and inside that ecosystem. So it's, uh, you know, again, I think it, it really goes – both ways, but I think either way you look at it, the waters get really muddy. Because on my own show, what I'm finding out with Brian Koberger now is they've got his touch DNA, and it was, you know, by a forensic scientist deduced to be like a one in 5.37 octillion chance that someone other than Brian Koberger's touch DNA, which is like 24 zeros, which is just an enormous number. And how do you like, Go against the gradient of science when you're talking about a number that big. But then, of course, uh, you've got these cyber sleuths who say they they just kind of omit that piece of information and say, okay, but it's just touch DNA and you can get. And Nina knows a lot more about touch DNA than I do, but you can get it from skin cells, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe it was planted there. You know, journalist X, Y, or Z will say, I still think it could be so and so or so and so. But it's really hard to go against the science. And so there's this like inevitable, invariable debate that goes on in the court of public opinion, you know, where it's either the mainstream media is trying to, that's what I hear now, the mainstream media is trying to portray this story that it's only Brian Koberger. And what about these other potential suspects? Well, right now, that's what the evidence points to, but the evidence is never good enough for everyone is what I found out.
0: On that case, actually, I was talking to a a connection about that who was saying that the police were actually pulling their hair out because of the people sat at home making comments and the phone calls, obviously, phone calls in. As an officer, you have to look at every phone call and see whether, you know, it could be that tiny piece or it, it, it may be complete crap, which is normally the case. But they had so many... People calling them and saying that they knew things. It just took time and effort away from what they were really needing to do. And um, I think sometimes public, sometimes great intention, but other other times, you know, maybe need to stop and think: Is this? Imp-? I mean, one of the one of the calls was something like, "What pizza topping? Yeah, he would like." Or I mean, I mean, just stupid random shit. But it takes away from a proper investigation where people's lives are affected. And I think sometimes the the wannabe detective sitting at home doesn't think that. But then we have cases like, what What was that show, Don't Fuck With Cats? That, yeah. That was solved by. so
1: Yeah, that was a great documentary. Um,
0: it was a great documentary, with yeah.
1: Worker, I think the FBI had a, set up a whole new tip line and they were, yeah. they were really – like, diverted from what they needed to do. Uh, things have kind of since simmered down, and I think it's more white noise than anything else. But uh, I always say we don't know what we don't know, and investigators know a lot of what we don't know, but um, and they're working on it behind the scenes. Uh, we'll find out at a trial, I think, but um, it's hard to investigate what you don't know.
0: And so crimes, the big crimes that you've mentioned, a few big crimes that you follow on the podcast, um, media is having a play on all of those crimes. And, you know, Laurie Valle, that was huge because they weren't allowed in the courtroom and they had been. um, And, you know, everyone goes back to OJ. What was going on there? What did the media consequences of that case have on following cases like the Menendez brothers? Because obviously the media was different then. Do you think that it's nine times out of 10 a good thing? Or do you think that, the media has some responsibility to not kind of affect the cases so that the law and the process and the justice system can work? Or do you think we've got the, the dividing line right?
1: Uh, well, I've talked to a lot of people like you. Uh, Detective Phil Waters is one of the guys I admire the most. He's investigated over 400 uh, homicide cases for the Houston PD, and he's on every Friday on a show called Great Scott. It's your true crime, Phil. He spells his name F I L, uh, so it's kind of a play on words. We um, we have that conversation a lot, and it's always like a a, a, a cat and mouse game between the media and. You know, people in your line of work. You know, we—it's our job to get the information. It's your job to get the investigation straight and keep it from us. So, I think there's always this tug of war um, in terms of sort of the court of public opinion and the courtroom. Right? Um, We see that with Brian Koberger right now. Uh, Judge Judge, one of my favorite names, Judge Michael Judge. um, He has a gag order in place, and my friends in media. And a shout out to Kevin Fixler. He's an investigative reporter with the Idaho Statesman, and uh, I've become friends with him. He's doing really amazing work on that story, but it's a constant struggle for him because there's a gag order in place. So, you know, it's it's again, it's like kind of a catch 22. It's a double edged sword, because on the one hand, you want to keep the sterility of the uh, investigation intact. You don't want to taint it tainted at all. You remember Moscow PD took so much heat uh, for for being inept, a small agency, and they caught this suspected killer. Again, he has not been convicted, a suspected killer, but they caught him in like seven weeks time. And Nina, you know, that's pretty fast uh, the way they were able to do it. So I think the bottom line answer to that question is you, meaning the individual, have to be smart. You have to you know, pick your information. There's so many places to get information right now. So you just have to be smart about where you get it. And some people are knuckleheads and they want to get it from dumb places and believe dumb things. And unfortunately, that's never going to end. So uh, it's up to you, the consumer, to figure out where you're going to get it from.
0: But something that you really take pride in, Joel, on your show is the fact that you have fantastic guests. You have, you know, professionals and people with great pedigrees. How frustrated do you get when you see a show that is trying to preach a, an ideal or um, a conclusion to something that haven't done their research, that haven't got the best guess, that ha- are just making statements and opinions? Because that's when I get frustrated. I'm like, but you, there's no authenticity about anything you've just said. But again, have great followings and people believe.
1: So what the... The Twitter Twitters of the world and, you know, all the social media, the Instagrams and all that, what what it's done is it's democratized everything. Right. So everyone is sort of on a level playing field. But what's interesting is, uh, you know, I know Chris Cuomo uh, quite well. Really good guy, actually, who was the main anchor at CNN at nine o'clock and now he's at News Nation. And I look at his YouTube numbers sometimes and uh, again, it's not to flaunt, but our numbers are substantially higher than his a lot of the times. And the point I'm making is the days of just being a big name doesn't necessarily hold the same value as it once did. Now, Joe Schmo, me, can be an independent journalist and get a big following and create really impactful content. The problem is, There are a lot of Joe Schmoes and Jane Schmoes who, for lack of a better word, as we say in Yiddish, are just complete schmucks or morons. And they're out there producing content. They don't know anything. Uh, And again, this is going to sound like I'm bragging and uh, I can hear my mom's voice in my head. scream, Don't say that. Um, But I do have a uh, professional background. So one of the things I found early on was just very basic things. It was easy easy to differentiate. Um, Just the way I would ask questions, the way I'd structure a show, because a lot of these shows you go on and it's just haphazard. Um, I always do my homework. Uh, I create a rundown, which is what we have in TV news. You know, I make sure to not have guests speak over each other. Things are very obvious to me, but not necessarily obvious to those who are content creators. And I see it all the time where it's almost unwatchable or unlistenable. And trust me, I get plenty of, hate email saying you're mean to your mom. You guys step over <laughs> each other, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I get that too. But the bottom line is there are a lot of people out there in the content creation world that maybe shouldn't be, but, uh, that is part of this whole democratization, uh, process. And now one of the things we have to contend with, which is again, a whole other show. And I just watched 60 minutes on this is AI. I mean, soon you're not going to need Nina or Joel. You're going to be able to just say, Hey, I want to do a show on, uh, Ellen Greenberg and, uh, You know, the AI uh, bot is going to be able to create an entire show, which is absolutely insane. I couldn't believe some of the things I was seeing on this latest 60 Minutes episode about AI, but uh, that is where we are are headed uh, next. So, again, it comes back down – for me to really uh, being a discerning consumer of content and deciding, hey, do I want to listen to Nina Hobson or do I want to listen to uh, Joe Schmoe, who knows nothing about nothing? No, I want to listen to Nina Hobson because she's been on the ground. She's a seasoned investigator. She's going to have really interesting insight. I want to listen to her podcast, not the other person. So you have to make those decisions.
0: So the media, as we're talking about, can be used in a negative way. And, you know, we've all seen cases over the years where the media impact has been so huge. Has it always given us the right answer to our crime? No. But we'll go back to Ellen Greenberg. And that's a case that we have talked about last week on your show. We actually want to use the media we want to make a noise and have a voice and, you know, by being on your show and talking about it. So there is a fine line of using them. It's a bit like Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, really, you know, use them or say that they're all bad. <laughs> um, but so that there is a good side to it. And how would you describe, again, from the inside knowledge that we can use it to impact these kind of cases, and we, we can talk about Ellen every single day until that that situation's changed.
1: Uh, well, I always say there is no more powerful weapon in the world than a, a microphone, and I've seen that firsthand because uh, the things I could get people to open up to when I was holding a microphone in my hand were really amazing. You can get almost anyone to talk to you and, you know, really kind of delve deep. And, and the Ellen Greenberg case, for those who don't know – is one that's really growing on me more and more every day in terms of the desire to get justice for this family. The parents are Josh and Sandy Greenberg. They had a daughter, Ellen, who was found dead when she was 27. This is back in 2011. She was a suburban Philadelphia teacher and she had 20 stab wounds, 10 to the front of her body and 10 to the back back and the back of her neck. And an independent autopsy prove that two of the stab wounds happened uh, after she had already uh, died. It's kind of hard to stab yourself after you've died. So long story short, uh, by the way, she also had 11 different bruises in various states of uh, composition on her body indicating uh, abuse. And she was engaged at the time and uh, the night she was found dead, there was a horrible snowstorm. Uh, Long story short, it was initially ruled a homicide, and then very quickly, within 10 or 12 hours, ruled undetermined, switched to undetermined, and then ultimately, a few months later, it was ruled a suicide. Again, two of the stab wounds came after she had died. It's hard to kill yourself uh, after that. There's notorious corruption in Philadelphia. The fiance's family, and I am not uh, convicting him, Uh, in the court of public opinion quite yet, but uh, I think he needs to be looked at. The family, his uncle was a a lawyer and a judge, and they were able to go in here into the residence and remove cell phones and laptops. The place was professionally cleaned by a crime scene cleaning crew, and it it just stinks. It stinks to high heaven. Uh, The attorney general is now the governor of Philadelphia, Um, And I I don't want to believe that there can be that level of corruption, but at the very least, I think this case needs to be looked at. And so to answer your question, this would sit completely silent in the basement of some evidence room if it were not for the media. And I'm certainly not saying I'm not the answer, but I'm trying to raise awareness to get – the Philadelphia Inquirer back in this to get national media attention. Nancy Grace is picking it up now. She obviously has a huge voice, but um, that's where the media can be really impactful. I had STS Nation art crew uh, tweeting at the Philadelphia mayor, who has the uh, power and the authorization to get the medical examiner to take another look at this. So uh, there are ways that the media can be very powerful. Again, there's flip sides to everything. So with social media, Twitter, Instagram, it can be used in very powerful ways. It's just how you choose to use it.
0: That's a, a great answer. And if you want to know more about the case, please go to Surviving the Survivor, because it's a case that Joel and I became very passionate about, because um, it's just wrong in every way. And and so we'll, we'll be talking about that for a long time. Any case that springs to mind, Joel, that the media has fucked it up in English terms, like it's the results because of them.
1: Well, one that we're doing right now, I wouldn't really blame it on the media, uh, but the Suzanne Morphew case, which admittedly I don't know a ton about. She is a uh, a mom that went missing on Mother's Day 2020 in Colorado. Very attractive woman married to a very attractive man who was at one point a professional baseball player with two, you know, very attractive daughters and, you know, teenagers or college-age kids. So they're kind of like this all-American family. You know, you dig into the story, you find out the marriage was on the rocks, and it has all the makings of, uh, you know, a a fictional murder mystery, even though it's true. They find uh, the case to a tranquilizer gun in the dryer of the family. One of the beliefs is that the husband, who was an avid hunter, maybe shot her with a tranquilizer gun uh, because there was no blood evidence found. Uh, this wasn't really the case. This is actually a case where the media is trying to help, but the, the prosecution uh, sort of dropped the ball, and the media has has lit kind of a, a light to that to show that the prosecution failed in its case. Uh, this guy Barry Morphew was set to go to trial, and nine days before uh, the case was dismissed, and people are outraged because people do believe Uh, that he is the likely killer. But the twist of this is then some uh, DNA was found on uh, Suzanne Morpheus, the glove box of her car. They were incomplete DNA profiles, but they pointed to someone who had committed sexual assault crimes in the past. And so it kind of really muddied the waters. Uh, So again, this isn't really answering your question per se. This is another case where I think the media uh, can help. But, you know, I think the classic case where everything got, totally bungled was the O.J. Simpson case. That was, you know, everything all at once. That was a uh, media circus, and it wasn't tamed by the judge, Lance Ito, at the time. And that was such a circus. So I guess there, there are plenty of times where gag orders uh, do help, uh, where, you know, taming the media and the, the tension that it can create that, during those times, you know, I, I guess it really falls on the judge, whoever's presiding over these cases, to make sure that things stay uh, in their proper place.
0: And just very briefly touching on the OJ um, case, because obviously I was in the UK growing up as a kid, and all I remember is the car chase. That's that's the extent, really, of what – and obviously he was a professional sportsman. But when you get a gag order and you spoke obviously about your friend who's covering a case now – How do you deal with that? What's the step as a journalist and somebody who has to tell the story to the community because that's your job? How do you go about it? Are there different things that you would do because there's now not the opportunity to cover it in the same way?
1: Yeah, I mean you just continue to dig in. You know, I've done that myself. I mean, on such a such a small scale compared to obviously a big crime story. But we had this uh and he's since passed away. But he was an amazing news director. His name was Forrest Carr, a local news director, a real quirky character, but kind of like the old school Fedora wearing, even though he didn't wear a fedora, but that kind of style of journalist. Uh, and I was working in Tucson, Arizona, and there was a small little town called douglas arizona right on the border and there was corruption within the school board uh, just a school board and he said we're gonna stay on this case come hell or high water and he called it stonewalling and it was literally like the iran hostage situation for the anyone who remembers that in the 70s uh, there used to be like a a countdown on the evening news every you know, day 13 of the Iran hostage situation, Dan Rather would be reporting day 51. We literally did that with the Douglas school board. It was called stonewalling. Like honestly, don't even remember like what was at play here, but getting back to this gap, they wouldn't talk. So when there's a gag order in place or someone is refusing to talk to you, you have to get creative. And I've talked about this, getting back to Kevin Fixler, the Idaho Statesman. So it really prohibits the uh, state and the defense from talking and, you know, law enforcement from speaking, but that doesn't mean you can't travel to Pennsylvania, which Kevin Fixler did to try to talk to family members of, uh, Brian Koberger. It doesn't mean you can't go to the university of Idaho and walk the campus and try to find, so you just have to get creative and, uh, you know, journalists, it's, it's, uh, I'd say like, you know, half of what we do, uh, comes from uh, the dopamine hits we get from getting a big story, right? So it becomes a, a drug, hopefully a healthy drug, and people work hard to get the information. Again, it's not always in congruence with what investigators are doing. And I've had this conversation with so many of your types who get irritated because now they're stepping on your toes. But it's what keeps things transparent. It's what keeps things open, and it's a job of the investigators to keep the investigation investigation close to their vest, which they're great at doing. And it's a job of the media to try to get the information out there. And uh, you know, it's better than the alternative. Let's say you go to uh, Tehran, uh, where they don't allow you to speak and report freely. You don't want that either. So uh, again, you have to pick and choose what you want, but that's the way the system works.
0: Join me next week as Joel and I continue the conversation about the role the media plays in criminal justice, the pros and cons of cyber sleuthing, and how the continued exposure to trauma through investigative journalism can affect a person's life. Until next time, I'm Nina Hobson, and this has been Codename Siren.